Hello, I'm Henry Raby. I'm a poet and I'm sat in my bedroom. I've spent a lot of time in this room over the past year, flanked by two giant stuffed bookcases, a pile of gifted stationery, an often unmade bed, and a window out to a rainy, freezy, wintry York. These are the Say Out But Stay In tapes. Conversations with poets recorded in January 2021 during the global coronavirus pandemic. Oh, hi, what are you working on at the moment? Musicians probably working on the next album. Artists maybe working on the next painting. Poets and theatre makers might tell you about their next project. Or one of them. For me, in 2019, I was working on Apps and Austerity. It was a solo project, a collection of poems all about the 2010s. And the theatre company I co-founded were working on our second show, English Dirt. These shows and projects are wrapped up in the not-so-creative trappings of producing, funding, touring, scheduling, marketing, all the grift of getting your art out there. And then there's the added factor, of course, that we're all trying to do it during a global pandemic. In this podcast, I chat to Rowan McCabe. The room I'm in is my bedroom because my girlfriend is a teacher. So she's teaching full time from home now. So I've, I've been relegated to the bedroom. And Genevieve Carver. Yeah, I think I'm terrified if I haven't got anything to do because then you just have to like look into the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> Rowan has been commissioned by Channel 4, BBC 3's The Verb, and is the poet-in-residence for the National Trust. Genevieve heads up The Unsung, a band fusing her spoken word poetry with music. Genevieve has been commissioned to write poetry, theatre and television for organisations including the National Portrait Gallery, Sky TV and Apples and Snakes. So I started off by asking Rowan to describe his door-to-door poetry project. It's a, a project where I uh, knock on strangers' doors and write bespoke poems for them on any subject that they're choosing. I pick a random street and I don't know anyone on that street. And I knock on a door and when someone answers, uh, I tell them I'm doing an art project and ask them if they've got a minute and 10 seconds to spare. And if they say yes, I do a poem for them. And the poem basically asks them what's important to them. And then we have a chat about it. Uh, and it could be about anything that's important to them, something like huge and political or, or small and, and seemingly just silly. Uh, but whatever it is, we have a, we'll have a chat about it. And then I go away and I try and find a handful of people in every area that I visit. Uh, and then I go home and I write the poems. And two weeks later, I go back and deliver them. I perform each poem on the doorstep. And I give them a little written copy as well so they can, they can keep that as a little keepsake. Door-to-door poetry evolved into a nationwide project, travelling all across the country, knocking on people's doors to offer them poetry. Well, it, it came about because I was doing a show about the beginnings of the project in the northeast uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe. And this woman approached us after the show and said, this is such a lovely idea, but it would never work in London. And I asked her why, and she said, well, because Geordies are exceptionally kind, aren't they? There's absolutely no way you could get away with this down south. And all through the course of the project, even up to that point, it was kind of like just a a stubborn refusal to accept that it wouldn't work. Like when I first had the idea and I I mentioned it to a few people, like I mentioned it to my friend Scott, and he, he just laughed for ages. And then, and then it worked in my local area, but where I am now in Heaton, it's, it's quite near Newcastle City Centre. It's quite studenty. There's a lot of young professionals, you know, mm-hmm. and a few people I started talking to about what happened. 
fairly understandably said, well, obviously it would work in a place like that. You know, people have a lot of free time. I'd like to see you try it in a council estate, you know? So then it was like, well, obviously that's where it needs to go next. And, and it seemed like every place was a, was a step of trying to just see how much I could get away with it. Yeah, so in a way, I think for me, going, going to places like, say, uh, say the bike or wall, pointing at my house, which is a, a council estate with a bit of a bad reputation, and, and finding all these lovely people there, for me, for, for a while, that kind of felt like it had gone as far as it could go. And then when people started saying, yeah, well, it wouldn't work in London, you know, or you couldn't do it in like Moss Side in Manchester. So it was like, well, I have to go there then. And, and in a way, it was all just a sort of stubborn refusal to accept that it, it, it wouldn't work. Uh, so that was that was kind of what came about from it. And then I started thinking, well, also, maybe this is a really good opportunity to capture a snapshot or at least that's what i wrote in my arts council bid henry Raby, to capture a snapshot of england in the 21st century but i do genuinely believe that that's as well a, um, that's what, a good phrase that oh <laughs> did you have a biscuit when you wrote that oh, no, yeah. <laughs> that'll get him that'll get um <laughs> so yeah it was it felt like it felt like it was an important thing to do and then i'm really pleased i did that in 2019 to, to 20 because it turned out to be a really kind of important year as well uh, so i felt like some of the places that i visited should be trying to reflect where we were at as a country or where we are at even because i think a lot of the things that uh i ended up ended up coming out of the conversations i had with strangers are things that were still really important now like i went to visit um uh anti-fracking protest site in Preston and I visited the anti-fracking say, which was a really interesting and lovely experience and a really great group of people uh, and, and they were working you know worked really really hard to to challenge the the work that was being done by I think it was Quadrilla were the firm that were, were, were fracking in Preston yeah so there was there was a few places like that that specifically chose us but like they, they reflected somewhere that we were about as well I, I visited some syrian families in kent as well which uh was a really quite moving experience um so that was that was the other thing that was that was leading us to do it i think there was this thing of, of stubbornly trying to disprove that it, it just couldn't work now a few of you out there are probably thinking Knocking on people's doors and going house to house probably isn't the best idea during a global pandemic. In a weird turn of events, so I was always going to end the project in the start of 2020. And because of the way, so I was visiting 12 places around England to finish off the project. And then I was going to kind of stop doing it. And the way things worked out, it so happened that March 2020 was like, the last place I was ever going to visit. So I went to Jaywick in Essex on the Essex coast, uh, just next to Clacton on the sea, if, uh, if anyone's tuning in around that way. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a bit spooky because it was always going to kind of end in about that time. And because I go away, so when I did it nationally, I went home um, after I met some people uh, and I spent a couple of weeks writing the poems and blogging about it and, you know, just doing, doing other stuff. Uh, and then two weeks later, I went back to Jaywick to deliver the stuff. And as I was on my way down, that was when Boris Johnson first gave that announcement of like that thing that wasn't lockdown, but kind of was where he was trying to get out of the responsibilities of it, where it was like, don't leave the house, but kind of do everything's going to stay open. And if you've got work, yeah, definitely keep doing that. But uh, you shouldn't 
work or do anything or go anywhere but definitely do if you can but don't etc yeah it was it was weird because actually the ethics of that situation it was it was kind of unfolding around us I had to make a bit of a decision it was hard because it was work as well so for me it was technically work and I was thinking well I've come all this way I'm in a B&B now in Clacton on mm. my way to deliver these poems what responsibility do I have here as, a, as someone who's supposed to be uh, visiting doors? So yeah, and, and in the end, it, it it became a sort of mixture of um, just posting the poems through the letterbox or uh, kind of standing very far away from people uh, as, as a delivered them. So it, it definitely was uh, a feeling that after that, it, it couldn't go on. At the end of his last project, Rowan took all his experiences and poems and created a spoken word theatre show called Door to Door Poetry. Rowan was going to do the same for Door to Door Poetry nationwide, but obviously rescheduling, restructuring and waiting was a big factor of creating work in 2020. Well, when we started getting the script on its feet and stuff, and our, we were thinking quite a lot about the idea of it being possibly in an outdoor venue as well. So that was one thing. And it actually wasn't really that difficult to just have a little think about, is there a way we can limit projections or sound cues so they're not essential? And then make it so that it will work indoors, but also outdoors as well, if needs be. It's just been waiting, you know? It's just been waiting to see, like you mentioned. And because the dates were lined up in November 2020, and that was all done in... 2019 it in a way it's kind of just been out of my hands which has been frustrating at times the first time the dates got rescheduled it felt a bit like oh no I need to make all these decisions and then yeah it just sort of became apparent that actually the process is you just you just sit down and wait for the venues to get in touch and that may take them a little bit of time understandably but really there's not much I can do from my end if the venue decide actually we're legally allowed to open, but we don't feel like we want to right now. Well, then that's okay. We, we reschedule for much later. I, I don't know if I would use the word adapt and more just, just wait. It's just been kind of sitting down and just waiting to see what other people say, really. Me and the director, Pedder, were meant to start work on the show, I think it was in March 2020. So mm. that couldn't really happen. Um, so we did a lot of the work over Zoom and writing the script. Um, but then actually the rehearsals, I can't remember when the first week started in Arkstockton, but we started a week of rehearsals and, um, and met up there for a week. And and to be honest, like at first it was a bit weird, especially because I hadn't got on any public transport for months and months. So I got the train down there and I stayed in a like some accommodation that Ark look after. So it's, it's specifically for people who are doing work there. So that was weird, but actually, once we got there and we got into it, it, it felt really surprisingly normal. I think Ark had put a lot of work into making sure that the place was was safe and uh, it was kind of quite straightforward. Like the rules um, about wearing masks, for example, indoors only applied or only apply, I think, still in the kind of hallways or, or the performance director kept it to me a distance at all times but I mean yeah I suppose yeah thinking about it now that is a little bit strange but yeah I, I think what I'm trying to say is I got used to it quite quickly I was probably more concerned that it would be weird at the beginning 
uh, and then actually, yeah, it, it, it sort of, it, it felt, it, it felt really good to be getting back in a, in a building and working with people again, because I, I mean, I'm sure you're in a similar situation at the minute, it's just in the house, doing it on your own, and I don't think I'd really appreciated that probably before, the, the, the benefits of just having a team of people around, even just to say hi to in the moment, you know. Around the same time Rowan was first creating door-to-door poetry, Genevieve was also creating a show. With her band The Unsung, she made A Beautiful Way to Be Crazy, a show which explores her personal journey into music and female experiences in the music industry. Genevieve has still been busy over 2020 and into 2021, but she's been able to take a step back and take a look at what a normal workload looks like. To be fair, I think when when it first happened, like the first lockdown, my workload was like, it was ridiculous. Like it was too much. And we were midway through this tour. Like it was so stressful. And when everything got cancelled, I was just like, like it was really sad because we put in loads of work to the tour, but also there was this massive element of relief. <laughs> like, yeah, still actually have been quite busy, but just not to that extent. Like, I think it's made me realise like what a normal workload actually is. A lot of artists in 2020 were forced to take a step back away from planning and touring and scheduling and programming actually gave them a lot of space to be creative and playful with their writing. Yeah, I think it's changed for me as it's gone on. But initially, yeah, I found it a really creative time. And, like, I was really lucky. Like, I know loads of people haven't been able to, like, focus on creative projects because of, like, financially they've had the rug pulled out from under them or, like, you know, things like... But I've just been in quite a lucky situation because I've got, like, a good kind of home and, like... Like I like where I live, I've got a nice place to work and I also had income still. So like for me, it just gave me that time to like really focus on being creative again. So in, first thing, we've still been doing stuff with the band mm. um, throughout this time. Although the tour got cancelled, we when we were able to meet up sort of whenever they relaxed things in the summer, we went into the studio and recorded an album and we did this gig to like an empty theatre space so that was like two things that we were able to continue doing and that that video that we made is like now available to watch digitally I've also been writing I'm doing some tv work at the moment for Sky so I'm writing my first um tv script which has been a massive learning curve I've also been working with a theatre maker in Sheffield called Jess Gibson who's absolutely brilliant um, and we've been making a theatre show together, which is, I think, essentially, it's going to be a one-woman show for her, or it's maybe going to have another actor or two in it, but I'm not going to be in it. So that's been my first sort of experience of writing, mm. you know, for someone else. And we did a lot of that over Zoom. And then I've also been dabbling in, like, my first sort of prose fiction. Like Rowan, Genevieve and the Unsung needed to make decisions about whether the project in these new circumstances could go ahead, whether they needed to wait, or whether they needed to adapt. Yeah, so initially, I think, like everyone, we kind of thought, oh, we'll just reschedule the tour for, like, six months' time. You know, back in March, it felt like that was kind of (laughs) a possibility. Like, oh, we'll just do it in November. Um, But I think it quite quickly became clear that that wasn't going to happen. And we, you know, I think by the summer we were like, well, it's either that we wait really probably another year 
before we do something now. And I think there was also a lot of advantages to doing. I I, I really miss live music and live theatre, and like I would never want to replace it. But from a performing point of view, um, I think there was a lot of advantages to recording an album, which we weren't planning to do because, or not straight away anyway, because we didn't have the budget. Because touring so expensive. So really, we had this budget to do the tour, but with that budget, we were able to record an album which is going to last, you know, we're going to be able to listen to that back for years to come and show it to people and it's going to stay. Um, and also record this film, which, um, again, like it's something that we that we can keep. So I do, yeah, I think there's been some advantages to the way that we've done it. In the brief window of the summer, Genevieve and the band managed to get together to record A Beautiful Way to Be Crazy. Um, we had like three brass players or horn players, like two saxophone players and a trombone player and a trumpet player. In fact, we had a four-piece horn section on one of the tracks. We had like some people coming in and singing. We had um, Lucy Weavers coming in doing cello. Yeah, we had lots of like, that was a really fun part of like, making what we do on stage as a four into something much bigger and including much more people in it in the studio. I think it did change something. I mean, it didn't change that much because in a studio environment, often you are recording parts separately anyway. Mm. Like you're not all going to be playing together, but it just kind of enhanced that. Like, you know, we had to make sure like only one person was coming in. Mm -hmm. So we were never all like in the studio together discussing everything, which was a bit sad, I suppose, because we were quite conscious to like, you know, separate who was in it on any one day or whatever. And yeah, it's, you never, you know, it's impossible to say, isn't it? Like how the sort of global conditions affected what we did. Poets often have to take responsibility for being their own publicity, marketing and social media manager, which can be draining. I've spent hours and hours trying to flog my wares online when the best way of me selling books has just been at a physical gig after a set. I asked Genevieve about the freelancer hustle and whether she's found other ways of getting her work out there. It's interesting that you say that you think I'm good at the hustle because it's definitely my least favourite job. And you are right, like, we we decided not to make any physical CDs this time round because, like, that is the majority of, like, our first album, the majority of sales is at gigs and people buy it because they've loved the gig and they want something to take away with them. It's so much, I mean, trying to sell music online is like not easy and I definitely haven't cracked it. Like my main hope is just that people will listen to it even if they don't buy it. But I, I think it is really hard and I think it's really um, kind of soul destroying <laughs> to be honest, to have to do all that yeah. yourself. Like, yeah. and again, in the first lockdown, like I had nothing to promote, like everything was canceled mm. and social media was just full of people going, ah, like COVID. So there was no need to go on there. And I didn't go on it for like a couple of months. And it was so, I think that probably also played into why I felt so creative. Rowan has been able to do some touring, specifically in his role as poet in residence for the National Trust, who travelled up to Cockermouth. He tells me about his role and how he's been able to connect with audiences without necessarily doing gigs. So uh, I was asked to be poet in residence at Wordsworth House in Cockermouth, which wasn't uh, Dove Cottage, often gets confused with that in, in Grasmere. It's Wordsworth's childhood house. So he lived there, I think, until he was about seven and went to boarding school after that. 
but yeah, I mean, it was just like a lovely thing to be approached about at the end of 2019. And, and the sad thing was I was meant to be spending a lot of time in the house itself. And I'd even managed to blag someone from the costume department in the museum to tailor make us uh, an 18th century tailcoat. I, I, sh- I should say, I didn't just like harangue them for like months on end until they did it. It just sort of naturally occurred. I'd mentioned a coat that they had in the museum that is out there for people to try on. And uh, I said, oh, I really love this coat. I, I don't suppose you know where you get them from because I'd actually really, really genuinely like one. And and Zoe, who I've been chatting to uh, mostly uh, from the National Trust, I'm sure we can we can arrange, uh, get one of those made, which was lovely. Um, yeah, the disappointing thing was I didn't get this one around Wordsworth's house in my table, but we talked in March about just carrying it on mostly online or from home. So there was three parts to the project and it was going to last all through 2020. And then we rejigged it. So there was just two actually. So yeah, there was, we came up with a, a similar thing to door to door poultry where it would be post to post poultry, uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can uh, fill in the blanks. You send out letters to random addresses and, and people roll back as well. I've, I sent letters to uh, people on the street in Cockermouth, not far from the museum. Uh, and it was just amazing that they wrote back as well, like just a random letter from some guy saying, hi, I'm a poet. Because I, I thought I wasn't quite sure because on the doorstep, you know, you were, you can sort of, I think, yeah, it, it's just easier to make a judgment about someone's intentions, I think, than when you get a random letter. People people took the chance, which was lovely. And actually, interestingly, because um, that was in March 2020, and it felt like, the responses came in in a staggered way so it was like one week you get a letter back and then the next week another one and every letter seemed to be chronicle and like another little section of what was happening uh so like the first response was yeah i've been organizing a lot of um stuff on zoom for my colleagues who are uh, on furlough just to kind of keep up morale and things like that the next one was um you know i'm really enjoying getting out into the garden and because there's no traffic everything's just deadly silent. So I've discovered, uh, you know, a newfound love for, for birdsong and stuff like that. Yeah, that was one thing. And then the other idea was to do a little project where I do some walks that Wordsworth used to do uh, and then stop some people along the way and, and have a chat with them uh, in a similar fashion to, to some of the poems in, in lyrical ballads and uh, come up with something based on the story they tell us. So in the summer last year, when things were a little bit more relaxed, uh, I took a trip to Kazakh uh, and did that, which was great as well. Stayed in uh, in Greta Hall, which was Coleridge's house in Kazakh. But the house is sort of divided into different accommodation now. So we were in the washroom. Well, my, my girlfriend came with us and she's still persuaded that we were haunted by Coleridge's ghost in the night because the cupboard door just kept opening randomly. But I don't know why he would go into the room whereas underpants are washed. I don't think you spend a lot of time in that room, to be honest. One of the very few gigs I went to in 2020 was to see the Commoners Choir album launch back in February. Commoners Choir are a Leeds-based radical collective of singers singing songs about rebellion, resistance and community. One of the lyrics that's been touring round and round in my head is the line, it's where we go from here that will define us. Rowan has seen quite a lot of the country. He's chatted to a lot of people. So I asked him if he's got any insight about where we are as a nation and where we might be going. 
there's always a duality there, isn't there, with um, talking about nationalism and heritage and things like that, because it can be used in a really dangerous way. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of uh, historical moments that have come from our country that are worth celebrating as well. But I think probably the most important thing would be like, if there's anything I learned from traveling all around England and talking to lots and lots of different people, it's that there's no real kind of British identity. You know, there's all these various different identities sitting next to each other and sometimes they come into conflict and sometimes they, they work together. And even, even groups of people who I think would, would lump themselves together culturally, actually, if they had more of a dialogue with, with different communities, might realise that the, the, there might be a group that you really strongly affiliate with, but actually you realise their values are quite radically different from yours as well. So I think, yeah, it's very, very hard to pin down though, because at the same time, I'm still aware of a national identity, even despite having done that. But I'm not quite sure what it is. It's 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 a it's a it's a, it's this constant. What's the word I'm looking for? Like struggle, if that's the right word, between different things. And I think that's what's kept it alive as well. I think that was one thing that became very clear, though, the fact that there is just no coherent identity. Um, and oh yeah, oh cool. Okay, so this is this is one thing I, I was thinking about, like. The one thing that the show kind of touches on and that um, I wonder if you felt this before as well, like the South seemed incredibly intimidating to us um, before I started that project. And there was this kind of imaginary line for us that actually probably might not even be the same as yours. Mine's like below Sunderland. Anywhere below that is where the South begins and everything below there is kind of weird and scary and people do things differently. And because I went from North to South, and there was a little bit of uh, of a difference here, but generally I, I was trying to work south, and I kept wondering when it was going to get scary and when people weren't going to get really intimidating and like the way I imagined them. And yeah, I, I think that was another thing that became quite apparent. Um, you know, even even London that has a reputation for being so um, gentrified and and. Yeah, the way people talk about London is this kind of homogenous mass of people. And actually from visiting three different places just in London, it became so obvious that, yeah, the, the, the struggle is there as well. This this clash, uh, well, I guess more than more than maybe anywhere in the world, this clash of different cultures and, and ideas. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe something more obvious to someone who, who lives in London. But for me, that was a personal journey of discovery to see that actually it's very easy, I think, wherever you live, to kind of lump uh, another location uh, into a into a homogenous mass, and you build up your ideas of what people are like there. And actually, yeah, the closer you look, the more complicated it gets. I think a lot of poets and theatre makers, including myself, have been having deep, serious thoughts and conversations about where we go from here, both society, but also just as individual artists and how we plot out our careers and future projects. Yeah, I think, I, to be honest, I think I had, I've had a bit of like, I've done a lot of thinking about where I want to go in the future. And st- I think a lot of people have like this year, although I think it's kind of things that I was thinking anyway. And like I think, you know, there's this whole discourse around like creativity and 
mental health and how you know sometimes performing and and just kind of putting so much of yourself into your work can be quite exposing and mm. like that's true of all different art forms and, and no one's like immune to it but I found that with performance poetry like it's so you it's and especially that show like it's so much of me that I have to like there's no veil yeah <laughs> but but I've and through lockdown I've really enjoyed writing things that are like I think some of the themes and stuff are relevant to like our culture but it's not like like it is kind of escapist it's like I can go into another world where there's another reality and like it feels more separate from myself yeah I love it I'm really interested in like inhabiting other characters and other realities and stuff at the moment yeah of course not everyone's been able to work on a project or show in 2020 They've either been paused or restructured or at worst, cancelled and abandoned. Sometimes I feel really guilty that the plans I had, the things in the pipeline, that I just couldn't make them happen. I worry, does that mean I wasn't ambitious enough, that I wasn't spirited or entrepreneurial enough? But there are so many factors, there's so many challenges and it's okay. I'm sure we'll evolve, we'll change, we'll adapt, we'll pick up these projects and ideas at some form or another down the line. But it's great to hear how some people have been able to make projects happen even under such difficult circumstances. Thanks for listening. Rowan can be found tweeting at Rowan McCabe. They've got a Facebook page, which is Rowan McCabe Poetry, and their website is rowanthepoet.com. Genevieve's website is genevievecarver.com. She tweets at Jevy Carver. The Unsung can also be found on Facebook and Twitter, a Beautiful Way to Be Crazy can be streamed until the 7th of February 2021. It's also available on Bandcamp and Spotify. Check out the other Say Out But Stay In tapes. We've got a whole host of them chatting with different poets and spoken word artists, including Malaika Kagodi, where she talks about her show Jackabol, which is a similar music poetry fusion like Genevieve's work. I've been Henry Raby. I tweet at Henry underscore Raby, and I've got a Facebook page. This has been a Say Out podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music supplied by Drooligan. Cheers, folks. Bye.